0: to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm a freshly caffeinated Allison DeAngelis.
1: I'm Adam Forcing, three cups of coffee in. And I'm Damian Gordy.
0: It's Thursday, February 22nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: My brain is buzzing. Uh, the drug industry is saying farewell to one of its more polarizing leaders, STAT's Matt Herper and former Alnylam Pharma CEO John Ragnori, join us to discuss the legacy of AbbVie CEO Rick Gonzalez.
2: Then we dive into the fascinating world of fetal genome surgery. Stats' Megan Molteni joins us to explain the work of a scientist named Tippi McKenzie.
0: All that after a word from our sponsor and another cup of coffee.
3: Hey, Read Out Loud listeners, Bob Herman here, stats, business of healthcare reporter, and the writer behind the newsletter, Healthcare Inc. Healthcare Inc. is a weekly newsletter devoted to unpacking the business and secret inner workings of the U.S. healthcare industry. If you're someone who has ever received a medical bill, or craves in-depth policy explainers, or loves a playful meme now and again, I highly recommend you check this newsletter out. Learn more at the link in this episode's description. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Thanks.
0: After more than a decade as CEO of AbbVie, Richard Gonzalez is leaving the company. Under his tenure, AbbVie's stock price rose almost tenfold, but integral to its success was the autoimmune treatment Humira, a medicine that has dramatically increased its price since its approval and which escaped competition for many years through some, let's say, Baroque applications of the law.
2: That makes Gonzalez something of a complicated figure in recent pharmaceutical history. Joining us to discuss his legacy are Stats' own Matthew Herper, who wrote about Gonzalez's retirement this week, and former Al-Nylam CEO John Maraginori, who knows a thing or two about this business. Matt and John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you.
0: So Matt, let's start with you. In your story this week, you reckoned that uh, you had know, these commercial success under G- Gonzalez and all the attendant baggage that made him a lightning rod. Uh, you reckoned with that. Where did you land on his legacy?
3: You know, I think this comes down on some level uh, to what a CEO's job is. Complicated figure is exactly right. Um, I don't think Richard Gonzalez goes down as one of the great pharma CEOs because of that complexity. What I was really trying to square is like, you know, you talk to investors. I think I've had three investors tell me that he is one of the best CEOs ever um, in the past month uh, without uh, without me really asking. Like it, they brought it up as like, oh, but abvi that's a company that's really done it right. They've done the transition from uh, I'm confident in the products that are coming along in the future – and then you have this complicated legacy that for people who care about drug pricing, this is a bad example, and to some people, an example of, of how the system was over-tested and maybe is springing back in a way that's not good for innovation. Kind of an idea that AbbVie's success stole from the rest of the industry and really from the future. Um, where I landed is that, look, CEOs get fired initially. The first thing that gets you fired as a CEO is you repeatedly don't get your make your numbers. And uh, if you succeed, you do. And I'm very sensitive to the idea that maybe there should be more. Maybe we want there to be more. But that's the base job. And he did it. And I think that in the memory of people in the industry, he'll probably be more on the plus side than the minus side.
1: So, John, you... Uh you posted on X slash Twitter a uh, kind of response to Matt's piece. And um you said it was way too kind to Gonzalez and Abby. What did you mean by that?
4: Well, I mean look, I, I, I actually think that, that his legacy um, will not be as favorable as 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 Matt suspects. I mean, I, I don't dispute his his numbers and, and the return he generated for shareholders. And I don't know him personally, I must say. But Humira was the straw that broke the camel's back in Washington against our industry. And it ultimately drove the drive to price controls um, and legislation around that, which will harm innovation and harm patients. And look, one can take a Milton Friedman capitalistic or Ramaswamy view <laughs> that the CEO's sole job is to make money for shareholders. But I believe that the biopharma CEO's job is to make medicines for patients and from there reward shareholders, the George Merck uh, famous saying. So that's where I disagree with Matt's take on, on his legacy at the end of the day.
1: So Matt, let me ask you. So John is sort of drawing a, a direct line between Humira, the pricing of Humira, the patent estate around it, and the Inflation Reduction Act and all the drug pricing kind of stuff that's going on now. I mean, do you agree with John? I mean, what's your take on that?
3: I I actually think John and I agree more than we disagree in some ways. But I think the fundamental area of disagreement here is that I would like all CEOs to be like George Merck or Ken Frazier or John. I don't think that that is, after years of covering and watching CEOs, that that is the first part of the job. That's the part of the job that makes – Figures truly legendary in an industry when they're able to transcend just making the numbers There's a contrast here and a conflict here. That's really I mean It's not just what's difficult about pharma. It's what's difficult about the world, right? And I would like it to be true That pharma CEOs are judged on their their impact on the larger world And I think they are to some degree but I think you can. I think that from the perspective of the people who hire CEOs, who are in essence shareholders and boards, um, that's not the case. That they they they're quite happy to take someone who delivers the returns, and quite a lot of CEOs don't. Well, I think you know, Matt, I I
4: I I have to agree that that delivering returns is an important and critical part of a CEO's job. And, and, you know, we, we took that very seriously at Alnylam as well, but it really was just the approach for how you would do it. And, 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 and I do believe that a biopharma CEO's job is to make medicines for patients. And if you do that, you know, that's the beauty of it. If you do that, well, then you will reward shareholders because it naturally follows those profits naturally follow as 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 we know from from the beauty of innovation and how it makes an impact at the end of the day. If you take the shorter term view and say, "I'm going to milk this cow till I get every piece of milk, every drop of milk out of it um and I don't I could give a crap about the rest of the sector and the long term implications that that is not a great way. To ultimately create an ecosystem that is sustainable at the end, and that and that is where I take issue um, with, um, you know, with with Rick's legacy in this regard.
1: So, John, you think is it, John, is it possible to to do both, to accomplish both, to yes. to both um, generate an, a return for shareholders and and kind of think about the broader world about in terms of drug pricing and access, and sort of not do what. You know, Gonzalez and Abby did around Humira. Yes, I totally think it is. I
3: mean, but John, I I have to play Ian Reed actually a bit here, because <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember there was a, a long time ago I was party to a conversation between Ian and Len Schleifer where they kind of had this argument, and the the other argument there is that it's very easy for someone who's run an early stage biotech company to say that. But it's very uncommon for someone who is running a company that has um, a $10 billion, $20 billion drug driving its profits to not look for every opportunity to to prolong. Um, It's a very difficult thing to ask of a board. And your fiduciary duty does end up coming into direct conflict with the – with the with keeping making the ecosystem you want in the future, there's a choice that has to be made. And I don't know that there are any CEOs who are celebrated for making the choice that they were just going to let it expire, that they were just going to let it go. I I am sympathetic to the idea that this went too far and broke the industry's back. But I think the question is, was it his job to save everybody else? You know, Matt,
4: it's interesting. I remember that conversation between Ian and and and. Uh, and Len. Uh, And it was around price increases that that were going on from from Pfizer and Len was commenting on it. I – you know, the the issue on all this is really the productivity of the industry at the end of the day. And you had Len – it's not about biotech versus pharma. It's between um, Len who's got an amazing platform that generates sustainable innovation versus the challenges that existed at Pfizer at the time – where there wasn't a product engine that delivered a sustainability around their growth. It was really around the fundamental productivity of their R&D engines at the end of the day. And that's why one company, namely Regeneron, was able to grow organically, sustainably without you know annual price increases. And the other company, Pfizer in this case, had to rely on other tricks of the trade. And I think that's the issue, um, not necessarily having to deal with a $20 billion you know, baseline per se, but really the real productivity of R&D.
3: But, John, is there a way to set the world up so that shareholders actually want that? Because I guess in 20 years of watching this, my impression is that the investor base doesn't always care, right? I mean, they loved Mike Pearson at Violient, who who is probably the ultimate example of right. <laughs> let's not do any R&D. We'll buy stuff. We'll raise the prices. We'll make tons of money, right? Yeah. How do you say somebody who seems to have built a, a sustainable company, made smart acquisitions, very hard to do when facing a large patent expiration? How do you say that they didn't do the job of the CEO just because you feel they didn't do this larger social societal job of being a leader in society as well as being a leader of their company? Well, again, it's it's about the sustainability. It's
4: it's It ultimately comes down to near-term reward versus mid to longer-term reward. You know, if you poison an industry – Um, in a a way that ultimately um, erodes the industry's ability to be successful. Longer term, you have not done the right job for shareholders. I don't think we disagree with that, right? So it's it's really a near-term versus longer-term issue. And I think a CEO um, should balance both sides of that equation at the end of the day. I mean, we all – we all think about strategy and growth of our companies. And we think about it in the context of what are the near-term things I've got to do? And then how do I look at my mid to longer-term prospects? Well, a CEO has to think about that more broadly, not just within the context of their specific company, but also the ecosystem that they live within.
1: Let me, let me pose this question to both of you. Um, you know, uh, you know, Gonzalez, you know, he's retiring, he's going to be gone. So um, what lesson do you think that the industry is going to learn from his departure? I mean, which direction do you think it will go? Will is it going to go in the in the Rick Gonzalez direction, or is it going to go in the John Moragonori direction? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I hope I, you know. Look, I, I because I've retired, I hope it doesn't go in my direction, and Rick Rick's retired too. <laughs> but I but I, I I do hope it finds a balance between these two um, extremes. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I think that there is an answer in the middle and look, we've got some great CEOs in the industry, including in big pharma, you know, look at Dave Ricks and Albert Borla, others, you know, that, that are really, some of them are struggling, but they are great CEOs. They think about the near term issues and objectives and they think about the longer term objectives as well. And I'd love to see a lot more of that in the future leadership of the industry.
3: I hope that's what we see. But, um, I am I really think that the pressure on CEOs often pushes them much more in the direction of holding on to profits than thinking about the larger needs of or the position of the industry in society. Yeah, that's true.
0: With the kind of legacy, this connection of Rick And Humera's influence on the IRA being passed, you know, that that linkage that you two are both talking about in kind of a post IRA world in a post IRA biopharma industry. Is there even room for kind of the playbook that Rick Gonzalez's career um, used?
4: Allison, I think there, there are different versions of the playbook that companies will adapt to even with the IRA in play right and and you know hopefully that you know, we who who knows what business innovation will emerge from from all that in the future but but i still think the ceos need to balance in in our industry need to balance the near-term um objectives with that mid to longer term ecosystem impact of what we do
0: matt john Thank you both. I love seeing uh, a Twitter conversation get brought over into the audio sphere and and kind of expanded. Um, And yes, I'm always going to call it Twitter. I'm never going to call it X. Um, Thank you both for joining us today.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, guys.
0: It's a situation that expectant parents dread. A routine checkup finds that the child you hope to bring into the world has a life-threatening genetic condition that can't be solved with surgery. There are often few options but to see if the child survives to birth and is strong enough for treatment, if there's even one available.
2: For years, the conventional wisdom has been that in utero therapeutics would likely never be a reality, both because of practical barriers and then ethical ones. There are those who argue that Even if it were possible, it shouldn't be attempted. Our colleague Megan Multenny profiled one woman who hopes to overturn those notions. And Megan joins us now to discuss this
1: scientist's work. Welcome back to the podcast.
5: Happy to be here.
1: So, Megan, let's set the stage for listeners. Your article dives into what's called fetal genome surgery. What is that, and how does it compare to other uses of CRISPR?
5: Sure, and to be clear, fetal genome surgery is sort of a term that I came up with for the purposes <laughs> of, of, of explaining how it's this works. It's coined now, it's so a good yeah. one. We're running with it. We're setting the trend. Yeah. In utero genome editing is like a little bit of a mouthful. Um, but essentially, what we're talking about is... Um, sort of like the next evolution within the field of fetal surgery. So this started in the 80s with the tools of the trade, you had scalpels, you had sutures, Um, you know, that sort of has moved to more laparoscopic technologies, much less invasive um things. And then you sort of have what are, you know, now we would call, you know, sort of molecular therapies. So you might um, you know, have an enzyme that you want to uh, give to that fetus because that fetus is not making it itself, and because of sort of the unique uh, uterine environment, the way the you know mother and developing fetus are connected at that time, it's actually a really simple procedure where you simply inject um, in directly into the umbilical vein. And that is able to reach the fetal blood system, sort of go throughout its developing body. And so you can deliver things, you know, what have been done so far in clinical trials are de- delivering enzymes. They've also done stem cell transplants in this way, sort of same procedure that has been less successful, but one, you know, it's sort of building on the fact that for many decades, um, fetal surgeons have known that you can do fetal blood transfusions this way. Um, so this is just sort Sort of, it's sort of taking an existing um, sort of evolution in in this medical field and and adding CRISPR, um, since it is obviously the sort of most exciting tool that we have um, going on right now, and so infuse that into the umbilical vein and have that go into the fetal cells and do the work it's going to do on the DNA there. Um, And so sort of fetal genome surgery, I think, captures the idea that um, you're sort of within the field. The the field of medicine that you're in is very much rooted in fetal surgery, fetal medicine. These are doctors who, these are their primary patients, and you're just kind of adding adding CRISPR.
0: Now, the idea of Mixing fetuses and uh, CRISPR and (laughs) CRISPR and babies um, is not new, obviously. And in 2018, there was a rather big um, event in China that kind of set the scientific community ablaze. How does the community feel now about the prospect of in utero genetic editing compared to the embryonic editing that was conducted in 2018?
5: Yeah. Well, you just to go back to you said it's not new for CRISPR and, and fetuses. And, and I just want to, yeah, really clarify on this because this is a, a really important point. Um, we're, when we're talking about the Chinese experiment in 2018, those children that resulted from that experiment were edited as embryos. So IVF embryos in a dish. Um, when they're sort of a single cell or a couple, actually in that case, it was a, you know, one to two. Couple of cells, um, old, and then they developed. You know, sort of all the way through, through to birth, um, and as far as we know, are, you know, children at this point. Um, but what Tippy McKenzie, who is the the surgeon that I I profiled in this, what she is proposing is a is a very different um, procedure. So this would be editing a fetus in the second or third trimester, at the point at which you're able to go in with genetic testing, with other kinds of molecular testing, and actually get a diagnosis so that you know what's wrong with that patient. And the distinction is important because from an ethical standpoint, the way bioethicists think about that is that's essentially just conventional medicine. You have a patient, they have something wrong with them, and you have a treatment that you can give them. You're just administering that treatment prior to birth at a time when the treatment has a higher likelihood, actually, of being more effective because of the way you know CRISPR and other therapies can really like spread throughout um, all the cells of a developing fetus. You know there are cells that you can't reach in a child after they've been born that you can in the uterus. So the human, um, the hematopoietic stem cells. These are the cells that are, are treated in sickle cell disease that are treated with Casgevy. Right now, they have to go through. Um, you know, a process where they release those cell- cells from the bone marrow, they pull them out, they collect them, they treat them in the lab, they have to go through chemotherapy to then, you know, get get their bone marrow emptied out to then receive those cells. And it, it's a really... Um, you know, it, it's just a really rough process for the patients. And in this case, you can, those um, hematopoic stem cells are actually living in the liver in a developing fetus. And so you can just reach them much more easily. And the same is true for um, neurons and other brain cells that aren't yet sort of locked behind the blood-brain barrier. So neurodegenerative diseases are particularly, um, you know, potentially amenable to this approach. And that is different conceptually than having an embryo that you don't know anything about that embryo. There's no, um, I mean, you might know it's genome, but you don't know anything about how it's developing. You don't know, um, you know, if it's developing an abnormal heart condition because of of the genetic um, sort of disposition behind it, you don't really have, you know, what they would call a phenotype, something to, you know, something to really diagnose that you're changing. I mean, in the case of the Chinese experiment, As far as we know, there was nothing wrong with those embryos. They were edited to make defective a receptor that is what the HIV virus uses to get into cells. And so the idea was to sort of make them resistant to HIV. And that's a really different proposition because in the one case, you have a patient that has a disease and if you don't do anything, there will be suffering and probable death. And in the first case, you're sort of or in, in the case of embryos, the the intervention is kind of the point.
2: So getting to Mackenzie's career, I mean, one thing that was fascinating to me about both your story and and your description of this approach just now is in itself the word surgery. I think when we talk about CRISPR, both in the culture and even at the FDA, we talk about it like a therapeutic, like a drug. It's something that's administered, whereas. I totally understand where the, the the application here, at least in the words of Mackenzie and others, is much more like that of surgery, where it's a procedure. It is something that's done, and as you illustrate in your story, her work now has roots in the old-fashioned kind of surgery. Old-fashioned is maybe a little bit pejorative, but you know the surgery, the, the the processes we think of when we hear the word surgery involving scalpels, et cetera, as you mentioned. So. Could you kind of I know the story is very long and people should read it and I'm not asking you to uh, recapitulate it in like 30 seconds. But, you know, what when did you first learn about her and how does the lineage of fetal surgery as it has been practiced for some decades link to this very modern take on it that uses CRISPR to do surgery at the molecular level?
5: Yeah, so I first I first met Mackenzie, uh, uh, in London last year at the uh, sort of third international genome editing summit. So this was this was the the summit that took place, um, sort of following the the one in two thousand eighteen where the Chinese experiment sort of details were were revealed, and you know where sort of that stain on the field was sort of very much still present, um, it was very much part of the programming while we were there. And what really struck me and, and why I wanted to spend some time with Mackenzie is that in the genome editing field, you sort of like people who are genome editors, like they build, they build tools. Like often there are folks who, you know, are also physicians, but they're, they're really sort of building these molecular, tools that can cut DNA, that can add DNA, that can do, you know, they're sort of they're more like you know, the producers of like bespoke <laughs> scalpels. And when I went back and looked at sort of the history of fetal molecular therapies, I was surprised to learn that almost immediately after some of the first human tests of gene therapy, that those people who had developed the tools of gene therapy, so we're talking about you know, transgenes and, and viral vectors, they were like, let's go in utero right now. They were like going to the NIH, um, RAC, they were like going to the FDA and it was really being driven sort of by, by the, the, the tool developers, by the people who were like, made these gene therapy vectors. They're like, this is awesome. It could be even more awesome to treat, uh, fetal patients. Let's, let's do this. And that, um, you know, the history of gene therapy, it was obviously pretty, you know, disastrous early on. And it really, um, I think has a lasting legacy in the genome editing community where the folks who make the tools are pretty cautious about how those tools get applied and who the populations are, um, you know, who they want to to start doing these first tests with. There's, a way in which Mackenzie coming to it from a totally other discipline, you know, coming to it from being a surgeon who sees fetal patients on the regular, she just has a really different sort of way of thinking about, um, you know, what the, what sort of acceptable risks are, what transparency looks like, what patient autonomy looks like, because she, you know, her whole career, she has essentially treated sort of two patients at the same time, right? She's treating she's essentially asking, you know, the person carrying that fetus to accept all the risk of that surgery, of that procedure on behalf of the, you know, the, the child developing inside them. And so she's really steeped in what would that mean? I, I think like the genome editing community is really excited to have someone like that <laughs> who's really, really responsible, really thoughtful, um as sort of being the person leading this charge because of sort of the history of what happened in china and some of you know the the early um excitement with gene therapy that was you know really unwarranted given where the science was at the time
1: and Megan, help us better understand what those potential risks are you know when you introduce a crispr therapy into a pregnant woman and a fetus
5: so, like I said, you're sort of you have two patients, and one of them, the you know the person who's carrying the fetus is taking on all the risks and doesn't stand to have any of the benefits. The fetus is is gonna stand to have all the potential therapeutic benefit. So there's primarily a concern um with risk to the mother, and that would essentially encompass can some of these CRISPR molecules, depending on how it's delivered. Um, crossover into the maternal bloodstream and either cause an immune reaction or, you know, do some, some, ter- some editing of her cells. Um, you know, which who knows sort of what the impact of that would be. But the, the, those are, I think those sort of pale in comparison to the, the risks of, you know, what the fetus would be assuming. So, you know, sort of like a double edged sword of this developmental stage where more, and different types of cells are accessible. And so you can treat things that are um, much harder to treat in after birth. But that also means um, that these, you know, genome editing components can really, can really get, you know, can really be distributed widely across different tissues. And the biggest concern right now is that some of the tissues that might be inadvertently impacted and edited would be germline um, tissues. So that would be cells that become sperm and become egg. And this, this is a concern, not so much as a, you know, not, we don't know what the health risk would be to the fetus, but there's sort of a very broad global consensus that germline editing, um, is really sort of a no-go at this point, because we just don't know what the impact is going to be of, of, you know, passing down these changes to future generations. And here in the U.S. and in like 70 other countries, um, that would be enough for a regulator to say, you know, absolutely not. You can't try this in humans if if there's evidence of that. The The, the thing that you're trying to do is find a window in development where tissues are accessible enough that you can edit them, but Tissues like germline are not. Um, And there may be ways to sort of tweak that on a tool molecular level to say, you know, um, only activate these genome editing components in certain types of tissues if that have this type of, you know, cell marker, but that's still off in the future.
2: Well, on that final point, as you mentioned, uh, McKinsey is very clear that it will there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done before she or really anyone would be prepared to make the case to the FDA to allow for a first clinical trial of one of these attempts um, at fetal uh, genomic surgery. But can you give us I mean, I, I know that all of these answers, you know, kind of demand a lot of detail. And so I'm asking you to sort of commit the sin of uh, of yada yada yadaing some stuff. But in your sense, what what kind of work is necessary to get to that point where testing this in a human trial is um, potentially viable, and how long might it take to get there?
5: You know, I will say that there are a few other labs that are also pushing for this forward, um, including with some with support of of the NIH, and they are, um, you know, they're they're doing experiments in in mice and in non-human primates. Um, and the way they are thinking about it, this is um, Bill Parento at CHOP and Karen Musenru at um, University of Pennsylvania. And the way they're thinking about it is that they don't believe the FDA is going to green light an in utero CRISPR therapy that has not yet already been approved and has a couple of years of follow-up data in postnatal populations. So in, in kids and in infants and in adults. I think what the FDA was, really needs to see, first and foremost, is no evidence of germline transmission, and so that would mean that you're using the same, you're doing tests with the same clinical grade um, treatment that you know has been has been used, has been approved um, postnatally, and you are testing that in large animal models, and in this case, the fetal model, the fetal model they use is is sheep. Um, and then you're looking at, you know, where did it go? Did it edit, um, in germline cells? And so, you know, those, those experiments are expensive and they take, um, you know, they take a couple years to get, to get set up. There's also the issue of finding sort of the disease, the sort of first use case disease where it's serious enough that this is, you know, that it would warrant this kind of approach. You sort of need to be talking about diseases that are otherwise fatal um in in utero. And you know, that's why that's why no one's trying, you know, Caskevi in utero right now, right? Because um the risk benefit for something like that just doesn't doesn't net out at this, at this stage. So there's some, you know, there's some work to be done to figure out what exactly, you know, is that right um, disease use case. But I think really the biggest issue for regulators is going to be the germline issue. So I think that's where her, that's where her, um, efforts are focused at this time.
1: Well, Megan, this is a fascinating topic and, uh, I encourage all of our listeners to go to statnews.com and read Megan's profile of Tippy McKenzie and her work in fetal genome surgery. Megan, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Yeah, thanks for thanks for talking about this. It's uh it's really it's just really it's just really wild. <laughs> it's really it's really cool.
1: that does it for another episode of the Read Out
2: Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke and our theme music is by Brian Joel.
1: We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and uh, I don't know, your thoughts on Rick Gonzalez's legacy. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
2: And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
0: See you next week. Sorry. (coughs) Cut this out of the... (laughs) <laughs> Keep everything else cut no, this let's, out. Let's, let's
1: leave that in Let's leave the whole thing
0: in
2: Like this is some weird biohacking Project for you like you begin really high On whatever that is just suddenly choking To death seconds
3: later